I'm J.P. Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Hi, Kiki. Hi, Tuesday. We are going to be talking about Rogers and Hammerstein's Cinderella, the 1997 version that Disney produced for the wonderful world of Disney, starring Brandy and Whitney Houston. Rodgers and Hammerstein themselves, legendary Broadway duo, Richard Rodgers, Oscar Hammerstein. All I have to do is list their credentials. I mean, Oklahoma, Carousel, South Pacific, The King and I, The Sound of Music, legendary Broadway musicals. Yeah, and um, people originally forget that the, um, the Cinderella musical itself was originally written for television. Yes, uh, I was getting to that. So Rodgers and Hammerstein were asked to write this musical for television back in 1957 with Julie Andrews. Yes, that's Julie Andrews as Cinderella. For a very long time, it was considered lost media. We've talked about junking on the show, in in particular Doctor Who junking, but it wasn't just them doing it. It was all over television. So many live events and TV shows are just lost to time because of the junking practices of the 1950s and 1960s. But in the uh, early 2000s, it was rediscovered. Someone had a copy of the 1957 uh television production and now you can get that so it's so it went from lost media to found media if you want to see uh what julie andrews would have been in a black and white cinderella uh the they did a second television production in 1965 with leslie ann warren in the role of cinderella here's the thing the 65 version is the version i'm most familiar with because that is the version that aired on the Disney Channel back in the 80s. The thing is, is that um, that's the one I think that I I grew up with, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I saw um, J- Julie Andrews and Carol Burnett used to do specials together. Mm. And... They did a lot of um, songs from Cinderella and things like that um, in those TV specials. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I knew some of the songs. So Disney wanted to bring this back, and this had been in production or at least talked about for a very long time. So far, so long, in fact, that. Whitney Houston was originally going to play Cinderella. But this show, the this program was in developmental hell for so long that, unfortunately, Whitney Houston kind of aged out of the role. But she was still tied to the production, and they were able to 
put her in put her in here as the fairy godmother mostly because it would have um it was the only role that worked with her touring schedule uh watching this it's very clear that there are times where Whitney Houston and Brandy are not in the same room having conversations. Which you can tell very obviously because of all the green screen. Yeah. Especially in the ending where she's, where she's green screened in the crowd and in certain buildings. And of course the really bad green screen and with the CGI sparkles at the beginning of this movie. Yeah. So it was Whitney Houston's suggestion to put Brandy in here in Cinderella. The two of them had become friends in Brandy's young career. And Brandy also had, um, I forget the name of the show, but Disney Channel had a show of showcasing young up-and-coming singers. And one of those singers was Brandy. So... Before she got famous. And then she got famous and then Disney re-aired the show. Hey, it's the show that introduced Brandy to the world. Yeah. um, And she was also on um, Moesha either before this or right after this. I can't remember because I I honestly didn't watch it. Um, I was watching other stuff at the time. 96, 96 for Moesha. So, yeah, she was already on TV. She was already known to to TV audiences then. I mean, I knew who she was, and I had heard, I had listened to her music, but I didn't listen to her. Uh, I, I didn't watch her TV show. But I loved the Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella because it had some of my favorite songs in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked several of the songs from this. Um, I really like in my own little corner. Um and the this has one of the best villain songs. And it wasn't even in the original Rodgers and Hammerstein production. So for this television version, this movie version, they add three new songs from other Rodgers and Hammerstein's musical. Specifically Rodgers musicals, not necessarily Hammerstein but other Rogers musicals. The opening number becomes The Sweetest Sounds, which is from No Strings. The villain song that you might be talking about, Falling in Love with Love, originally is from The Boys from Syracuse. And the final song, The Music in You, is from Main Street to Broadway. So they took all of these other Rogers and Hammerstein adjacent songs and put them in here. And they work. Like, they're from completely different shows. But they're so close to how the songs in the original Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella were performed that you can't, if I didn't tell you this, you wouldn't know. Well, I'm glad you like falling in love with love. I also like falling in love with love, but that is from a different show. I am talking about the original villain song from the original musical mm-hmm. that I already liked, which is the song that the stepsisters have. The stepsisters' lament. Yeah, which is when they're 
complaining about why the prince would fall in love with Cinderella, um, which I think is one of the most uh, hilarious, well-written villain songs in a musical. Um, And it's rare for a woman villain to get a really good comedic song like that. And it's always been one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that song is the one I really like. And they do it really well in this production. Um, Cause I really like the, the women who play the, the stepsisters and the thing about it, to go back to Falling in Love with Love, it gives us a bit of backstory that no other version of Cinderella gets. Because we kind of get a bit into the stepmother's mind, giving the impression that she did, in fact, at one point, loved someone, got hurt, said never again, and now is just marrying for money. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely see it that way. Plus, I mean, Bernadette Peters as the stepmother. If you're going to cast a legend like Bernadette Peters, you're going to have to give her a song. Yeah, and that was the thing is she didn't originally have a song mm-hmm. uh, in kind of the the original musical as written. So they had to pull out... a a song from a different uh it's a rogers and hart uh musical but um and it's it's one that i had heard her do before and it was already in her repertoire Hmm. i believe um i think i had heard her do it in concerts and other specials uh before this um so i think they just pulled one that fit that she was already good at it really does fit the the tone because they turn it into a very mocking song for the stepmother to use against cinderella and also, she sings it because she sees her stepdaughter, her daughters, kind of siding with Cinderella. And she's going, no way. My daughters are not going to be like you. These these lovesick puppies. No, I'm going to teach them right. I'm going to turn them back to the right direction. Falling in love for the sake of love is stupid. <laughs> but another casting choice we have here is Whoopi Goldberg as the queen. And Victor Garber as the king. Victor Garber, of course, Broadway legend. But Whoopi Goldberg is Whoopi Goldberg. She, to the general audience, she is the most well-known of the two. So they kind of flip the roles here, where they give Whoopi Goldberg all of the king's lines, which means the king now has all of the queen's lines. Even the songs are given to Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah, which is kind of a shame. Again, Victor Garber, Broadway legend. Let yeah. him sing. And again, Whoopi Goldberg, yes, we talked about Sister Act, and 
no offense to Whoopi Goldberg, but she does not have the vocal range for this kind of show. She does not. So to have her do all of the King's songs and have the King's lines because she is the most well-known uh, actor of the King and Queen. Uh, it, again, no offense to Whoopi Goldberg, but it does do this show. It does do this a bit, a bit of disservice. Well, and honestly, they don't really have either of them sing much. They they really have her sing one line in um, the reprise of Do I Love You Because You're Beautiful. Um, and there's like a little, like one or two lines in The Prince is Giving a Ball, but she mostly kind of talk sings. During yeah. that, and then Jason Alexander, uh, who is the, you know, manservant that does everything, uh, he has that entire song. Mm-hmm. So, they give him the song, and the king and queen maybe have a line. It's kind of interesting because they add in some songs because you've got, they add in a song so Whitney Houston can have a big ending number because mm-hmm. you've got Whitney Houston, you're going to use her for more than one song. Mm-hmm. You know, they give uh, Cinderella Weird. and the Prince an extra song. Also changing it so that they, it's Aladdin style. They meet at the beginning of the play to kind of give them a little bit more of a, of a, of a, of a repertoire before they meet at the ball. Yeah, you, you want it to be a little bit more of like, oh, they kind of liked each other before the magic in the ball and he liked her before she was beautiful kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also just because, you know, they both have really good voices, give them an extra song and whatever. And then you give Bernadette Peters a song because Bernadette Peters, but they, they don't do that for like Victor Garber or that they don't at least even try for Whoopi Goldberg or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't know. It's it's kind of interesting where they made their choices in this. Mm-hmm. Of course, I I mean, let's go ahead and talk about the the casting in this because that was the thing that got everybody all up in arms. Yeah, back Brent- in ninety seven. Brandy, a lot of people would want to say, oh, Tiana is the first black Disney princess. No. Brandy, the first black woman to play a princess in a Disney production, the first black woman to ever play Cinderella on screen. Likewise, Whitney Houston, the first black woman to play the fairy godmother on screen. And of course, obviously, the first time two black women would play those two roles in the same production. And if this were to happen today, 
oh, oh, Twitter would be all up exploding at how they make this all woke and blah, 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 blah. Thank God social media didn't exist in 97, but yeah, not like people weren't already complaining about it. Well, the thing is, is that Disney made it a big point at the time that this was their first, I guess, colorblind casting production. Because if you'll notice, like, okay, the king is portrayed by Victor Garber, a white man. The queen is portrayed by Whoopi Goldberg, a black woman. Okay? And their son is portrayed by Paolo Montalban, no relation, who is a Filipino man. All right? In his first role. Yeah, his first on-screen role there. Yeah. the And the thing is, is that that is, it's not supposed to be like, oh, look, we have adopted a baby or whatever. That's just supposed to be their child, you know? And so this is, Disney really did a PR campaign of we did colorblind casting. You've got Bernadette Peters. And her daughters, one of, you know, Bernadette Peters, white actress. One of her daughters is played by a white actress. One of her daughters is played by a black actress. It's never brought up in the context of the, you know. Um, and so it's it's like that throughout the the film, you know. And Disney really did, at the time, put out a PR push on it of how proud they were that this was their first colorblind casting um, production because they thought now, like, we have progressed so much. And... It did get backlash. I know that you're talking about, like, oh, if Twitter had existed then. But, you know, I I was there, Gandalf. You know, (laughs) like, I remember. Don't quote the old scriptures to me. I was there when they were written. Yeah. And I remember that this was a big thing. This was the chatter on the morning talk shows and stuff about, you know, how does the the white king and the black queen have a Asian son? And, you know, it's like, and you kind of look back on it now, and in a way it is kind of quaint, but it was kind of the talk of the day. Mm. Um... I honestly, like, I was a different age then, um, so I was kind of like, huh, that's interesting, because it was the first kind of thing I'd seen like that that wasn't, this is a school play and we're just using whoever is around, Mm -hmm. 
you know, you get a lot of that in like school plays and community theater because you're just you cast whoever shows up. Mm-hmm. But it was the first time I'd ever seen a professional production do it. So I did find it kind of fascinating that they did it. But now I'm kind of like, eh, who gives a crap? You know? <laughs> like, Yeah, but even, again, even if a production were to do something like that today, Twitter would, like, would just explode. Even oh, though yeah. But yeah. also you've got a woman turning mice into horses and humans and stuff. So who, who gives a crap? Plain yellow pumpkin becoming a golden carriage. Yeah, I mean, eh, whatever. The um the thing about it is though while I don't really care about the colorblind casting part of it I think the casting is the one part where this kind of falls on its face a little bit a lot of these people were casted based off name value. Like I said, Whitney Houston was already tied to this. She is listed in this movie as executive producer. So she had final say. Apparently there was a lot of issues with, cause she had final say over the script. And again, she was on tour. So it took forever to get, to get back to, for her to get back to them about script changes. We didn't have email back then. So, so she was going to be in this thing no matter what because she's been tied to this since she was supposed to play Cinderella. So obviously that you have Whoopi Goldberg tied in here because she is a name a- actress. Like I said, her voice really does not fit the role she's given. Bernadette Peters is Bernadette Peters. Yeah, B- Bernadette Peters is great. Love her. Hmm. Yeah, I, I will hear nothing against her at, at this moment. Moving on. Yeah, and Brandy, uh, again, she was already on television with Moesha, already uh, uh, famous with her singing. Again, pan-selected by Whitney Houston to be Cinderella for this production. And that's where I'm going to say this thing falls down. I've got nothing against Brandy. Brandy? fine pop singer fine girl what a good wife she would be had to get that in there okay the you you proud of yourself yes (laughs) okay as long as you're proud of yourself it's all good the problem with brandy in this role though is that she has an excellent pop voice and that doesn't translate to broadway And that does not translate to what is needed for this role. She has a very... Without all of the mixing and production that goes into pop songs, her voice comes out very thin and mousy. And that can work for a a couple of the bits when she's timid Cinderella at the beginning it works in in my own little corner 
is safe for that, it doesn't even work because if you listen to how most people perform that song, it's supposed to kind of go back and forth. You know, it's the the timidness of being in the corner and being safe and then going off on these adventures and you're a bit more sure of yourself and everything. And then you're back in your own little corner. You know, so it's supposed to have you're supposed to be able to see that she's more inside than other people notice. In her fantasies. And so it's supposed to start off kind of timid. But then when she's in the fantasy, she's supposed to be a little more sure of herself. And then she's supposed to shrink back. But the thing is, is that when Brandy performs it, it's kind of one note emotionally. And her voice kind of stays at at a similar cadence throughout the song. And I know she was already on TV, but her acting just doesn't hold up with all the other people she's acting against. Especially her co-lead. Again, who is this? This is his first television role. Yeah, he also, he went on to do this same role, the the role of the, the prince, um, on stage where the fairy godmother was played by Eartha Kitt. Can you imagine that? Oh. Oh, my goodness. Legend. Um... His Cinderella in that show was um, a girl that was on The Sopranos. Mm. So um, I don't know how how good she was, but Eartha Kitt, are you kidding me? Have you ever seen her in Wizard of Oz? If you have not, find it. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's, I, I, she's, I think I have. I think I have seen seen bits of that. Yeah, I've I heard the soundtrack at least, and she's amazing as the witch. Yeah, but. Anyway, you know, Brandy is is working again. I mean, most of her scenes are up against Bernadette Peters, who is one of the most powerhouse actresses of the stage. Mm-hmm. And I hate to say it, but yes, she's supposed to be meek and mild Cinderella, but Bernadette Peters just absolutely plows all over those scenes. And it's not any fault of Bernadette's. She's doing her job. Mm-hmm. But it's just that Brandy at the time, and I don't know if it was because she was relatively new or what. You know, I've got a lot of respect for Brandy as a recording artist. I really like her her music, but I just, I think that she was too new for this role. I I don't know. It just, like I, said, I think she with got... the, the pop voice, she didn't have the power 
behind her voice, and I think that she was too new to acting versus the absolute legends she was acting against. And again, she was handpicked by the executive producer of this movie. So Yeah, I, and and I respect that. But uh, what I'm trying to say is that if she was not friends with Whitney Houston, if she was not essentially Whitney Houston's protege, she would not have gotten the role in the movie. Yeah, that's probably true. I will ag- I will agree with you on that. And that's that's my problem because everybody else I think in this movie does a pretty good job. Although I question the choice of what they did with Whoopi Goldberg because I don't know what they were doing with that character of the queen. Because Whoopi Goldberg's character is mostly to stand there and squeak. Did you find that odd? Like, she's trying to be the a commanding, overbearing queen. Again, that is the role of the king in the original version of the story, of this musical. But it just, her voice doesn't command it. Which is weird, because her voice can command. I've seen her in other roles where she can do that. Mm-hmm. But every time the the prince talks back to her... She just does this weird squeak thing. I think they were trying to go with how dare my son talk back to me. But it just comes off very awkward. Uh, Yeah, it's it's a very awkward kind of thing that she goes from being like, I am the queen and her husband, the king is constantly backing down from her like he's afraid of her. But the second the prince says anything, she just kind of shrinks and squeaks at him. So is she the overbearing matriarch? Or is she the weird little squeaky mouse woman pick a lane and stick to it yeah like the two best in this movie and i'm gonna say it the two best people the two best that steal the show are bernadette peters and jason alexander yeah they absolutely understood the assignment Mm -hmm. i mean jason alexander stage actor himself Beautifully sings his songs. But it's like he knows what he's doing. Bernadette Peters, legend, knows what she's doing. Victor Garber, wasted. Again, Broadway legend in his own right. Wasted in this movie. Yeah, he's kind of just set dressing for this film. And that's very sad. Mm -hmm. It feels like he was supposed to be the king the very overbearing over, you know, like, again, then they casted Whoopi Goldberg as the queen and everything changed. That's what it feels like. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Yeah, you kind of want to know, like, which of them was cast first. 
You know, like if they reworked it <laughs> for. And again, I I have to go back to Whitney Houston being the producer of this thing. She had final approval final approval over everything, which from right what I read about the behind the scenes of this of this production caused a lot of people, especially Disney, a lot of headache. So it's possible that a lot of the changes were at the request of Whitney Houston. I'm not blaming her, but she is the executive producer. She, and according to whatever I've read, everything that I've read, she had final say. So I can't argue with a dead woman. That's the thing. I, we cannot ask Whitney Houston because she's no longer with us. Yeah. The thing is, is that there's a lot I respect about this. Mm-hmm. The costumes are kind of fire. Yeah. I don't know what they use for the sets here. It looks... If you told me this was Epcot, I'd believe you. Actually, it was filmed on the old MGM sets, which were owned by Sony at the time. Ah. So this was the um, kind of legendary MGM lot mm. that a lot of old, you know, classic films were done on. Mm. I don't know if they built a lot of the sets specifically for it or if they were reusing some old sets but there are a couple of times where the camera pans a little too far and you can see that some of the buildings at the edges are not the correct style mm. so if you look at the edges of some of the the wide shots you can tell that I I don't know if that's like a different part of the set or whatever, but it it didn't get blocked out, and you can see that like it's like oh we're not in like kitschy fantasy land anymore. Like there's like a part of a like old west saloon or something over to the side that didn't quite get cropped out. Mm. Or um, painted over. Yeah, it, it's, it's, you have to be kind of quick about it, but I didn't notice it at the edges of some shots that the, the buildings at the edge of the frame sometimes aren't exactly the, the right style. As long as we're not seeing the Burbank skyline, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't I don't know honestly who owns those back lots or if they've been torn down now. Um but yeah, at the at the time that's that's what it was. Um it was the old MGM lot that was Sony property. Mm. They I I like the set design how it's like really over the top goofy. Mm-hmm. Um with just the most garish colors. Very storybookish. And it kind of matches the costumes because the costume also, some of the costumes also have a very garish color scheme to it. What's so funny is I love that they try to make Bernadette Peters' wicked stepmother look as garish as the two stepdaughters. 
And no matter what they put her in, Bernadette Peters just glows. Mm. Like, they try to put her in, like, quote-unquote, ugly, garish costumes. But no matter what they do to her, she just looks gorgeous. She's Bernadette Peters. Yeah, I mean, it's like, there's nothing they can do to her to make her look awful. Not like Bernadette yeah, there's it, no way it, she can not look like Bernadette Peters. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just like, oh, queen. But I love, I love. There's some, there's some gags in the film that I'm like, oh, these are really awesome. Like, there's one at the beginning where they're in the town going shopping and everything. And the stepsisters are going back and forth over whether this really awful hat looks better on, you know, which one of them. You know, does it look better on me or does it look better on me, you know. And they disappear into the hat shop while Cinderella has her little meet cute with the prince. And when they come back out, if you look closely, and they don't, they don't draw attention to it. But if you're paying attention, what has happened is while they were in the shop, the haberdasher apparently took the hat and split it in two and made two hats for the stepsisters. So they have the fat one and the thin one. Mm -hmm. And originally the hat has this like really wide brim and a really tall cylindrical um crown in the middle of it and when they come out at the end the fat sister is wearing the wide brim and the thin sister is wearing the tall crown part it's been separated in two to make two hats for the sisters mm. and it's such a tiny little detail but that they disappear into the shop fighting over this hat and they come out with two hats made from the one hat they were fighting over <laughs> that fits their body shapes, which I love. And it's such a tiny little detail that you could watch the movie a million times and miss it. But I I love that that attention to detail. That is just in the background there that the costume designer is like, let's give them a little bit of business to do with the costume, you know? I'm glad that they gave them a little bit. I mean, it's there in in the, like like you said, they have their own villain song. So, like, they do their best to give the stepsisters character. I also want to throw in, I mean, going back to Brandy, uh, the impossible song just... Some of it works, some of it doesn't. But again, a lot of it has to do with very obviously there are scenes where these two actors, Whitney Houston and Brandy, are not in the same room. But as you said, part of it is her voice, her pop star voice doesn't exactly translate to Broadway musical. Well, see, okay, Whitney Houston has one of the greatest pop star voices of all time. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody's going to argue that. Mm -hmm. But the thing Whitney Houston had was power. She can belt like nobody's business. And so when 
she's singing about, you know, impossible things are happening every day. And, you know, you believe it because it resonates. And she is singing that from the bottom of her soul. And when Brandy comes back with her part, it's so light and airy. And it's like she doesn't believe it. You know, mm-hmm. and if you go back and you listen to like the Julie Andrews stuff and everything, she's got that power to it. Like, yes, Julie Andrews has a light and airy tone, but she's also powerful. Mm. I understand that this is a TV movie and has a TV budget. About but- $12 million, I think, at the time. Considered to be the most expensive television movie ever made at that time. But the 90s television CG has not aged. Oh my god, it is so awful. The transitions from the mice to horses, mice to coachmen, rags into beautiful dress... The the, pu- the pumpkin turning into a carrot. That animation, that CG, it's so bad. Like it, I'm and sure. The thing that makes it worse is how much they linger on that. Yeah, to, to, because they were so proud of that effect in 1997, and in 2024, that is not an effect to be proud of. I will say this, it's weird that the transition from rags to dress looks not good, but the transition from dress back to rags does. Yeah, that was that was a, a much better transition. I think because there was more sparkles on that effect versus the sparkles on the rags to dress. The weird thing is, okay, I don't know if I just missed it or whatever, but did we actually see her lose her shoe? I don't know. Because I was looking for it and I was like, is she not going to lose a shoe in this? Because she, like, runs down the steps when it hits midnight, and then it goes back to rags, and I keep waiting for her to be like, oh, my shoe, or whatever, or him to, like, find a shoe or whatever, mm-hmm. but I do not remember that happening. Now, granted, I was watching this movie in a really awful COVID fog. I could have missed it, but I was watching for that part, and I do not remember it. And then later, Jason Alexander just shows up with a glass slipper. Like, you see her running with one shoe on, and that's it. You you never actually... It's almost like they forgot to film that shot. Like, she runs, it hits midnight, she runs away from the prince, she's running downstairs, they do the transition, and all of a sudden she's missing a shoe. I don't even remember seeing her missing a shoe. Like, they actually focused on it, they have, they moved the, the, the camera down to show her she's only wearing one shoe. 
Okay, I mean, okay, I'll I'll blame the COVID for that one, but, like, I don't even remember that. Because I was watching that, I was waiting to see, like, okay, is he going to find the shoe? Is she going to try to go back for the shoe? You know, because that's the whole thing about Cinderella, is the freaking shoe. Like, they, she runs, they, they have their little, one little song moment, their little, and then he bends down, oh, there's a shoe here. So we never actually see her lose the shoe. It's just the prince finds the shoe. And then Cinderella has to run all the way back home without the, because, you know, the, the, the pumpkin, the, the coaches of pumpkin and all that thing again. So it's like, like, eh, I don't know. Like I said, we see her, we see the prince find the shoe. We see Cinderella with one shoe on, but we never see her lose the shoe. And that's kind of a big thing. Like, like uh, we, we don't have to go here and tell everyone the story of Cinderella. Everybody knows it. But her losing the shoe Also, is... this is like the fifth version of Cinderella we've done on this show. Is it? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mean, seriously, like, I, this is... I'm trying to remember how many versions of Cinderella we've done... And this is like the fourth or the fifth. We've done the animated version. We did Sneakerella. We've done Ever After a Cinderella Story and this one. So four. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We need to we need to catch up on our Snow White remakes to even it out. And- <laughs> yeah. But I mean, but we talked about it when we when we talked about the original Cinderella. This is one of the most told stories in the world. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, but, but like I said, the the losing of the shoe is kind of an important part of the story. Yeah, and they kind of gloss over it, which is weird. I want to talk about. The um, the two songs that the prince and Cinderella have at the ball. Ten minutes ago. I I really like ten minutes ago. Mm-hmm. As as a song, it's it's very nice. Um, as a composition. Mm-hmm. And it's it's one of the songs that I really like. Um, Ten minutes ago, I met you, and now I'm in love with you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Paolo Montalban sings this so well. Mm. I mean, he just... Oh, it's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... They also have the second song they sing at the ball, which is Do I Love You Because You're Beautiful. Um, and I've always found that a really interesting love song. You know, the idea of am I in love with you because you're beautiful and you're wonderful or whatever, or do I think you're beautiful and you're wonderful because I have fallen in love with you? Mm. It's a great, it's a, it's, it's, it's a great thought. 
again, her voice, it doesn't not have the range for it, but when Whoopi Goldberg re- does that little reprise of the song to him, like, kind of trying to talk him out of it, like, do you think this woman is wonderful because you're in love with her, or are you in love with her? Do you want to find this woman because she's beautiful, or is or is she beautiful because you want to find her? It's really kind of a I'm trying to talk you out of this, but I will support you kind of song. And really, it's the only time in the story, in this version, where either royal parent is on the prince's side. I'm talking in general of this version, because in this yeah. version, in, 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 in this particular version, it's the king that agrees with the prince. Hey, let's do the ball. If he doesn't find someone he's in love with, no more balls. He gets to do this his way. I'm talking about the play in general. Whoever is the monarch that is antagonistic to the to the prince. That's what I'm trying to say. But to 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 go back to what you were saying, do I love you because you're beautiful? It's a beautiful song, and it's a wonderful way to look at love. Do I love you because you're beautiful, or are you beautiful because I love you? Yeah, and that's that's the thing, and I think it comes across better in this version because he met her at the beginning. Mm-hmm. In this version, like he doesn't just meet her at the ball mm-hmm. when she's got the magic around her. He already met her as Cinderella. And he even mentions it's like, have I seen you somewhere before? I'm pretty sure I have. Oh no, you've never met me before. I I find it interesting that in most modern tellings of Cinderella we want to make sure that they meet before the magic is put into place so that the audience understands that their love is pure. Mm. That their love is not magical. That, that it's real. Yeah, they they love each other even if, you know, he wasn't a prince and even if she was just a serving girl, they would still have something between them. Mm-hmm. She doesn't just love him because he's rich and royal and he doesn't just love her because she's wearing a nice dress and her hair's all pretty and you know mm-hmm. like they could meet in the marketplace in plain clothes and they would still have something between them and i do like that opening scene where the royal carriage passes by and it kind of knocks cinderella over and the prince comes over and he's like yeah those royals they think they can do whatever they want no one can say anything to them i did get a laugh out of that yeah because he just wants to be normal. He wants to. He doesn't like people looking at him and seeing the prince and worshiping him because he's the prince. He wants someone to love him because he's himself. Which very honorable trait, Mister Prince here, sir. Yeah. But you know, again, it's very 
Aladdin. It's very Little Mermaid, Disney Little Mermaid, almost. So, again, there's already that bit of the Disney magic in here. I like how they brought that back at the end of the movie. How he sees Cinderella in the rags in front of the royal carriage, puts two and two together, and he says that line again about royals think they can go wherever they want, do whatever they want, and realizes that the girl he was dancing with at the ball was the girl he met at the marketplace, the girl, the girl he truly fell in love with. It's a very sweet ending with your green screen Whitney Houston to do the magic. I Overall, it's not... A, I've seen worse productions of Cinderella, going to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean... I mean, the, the Amazon... Cinderella that came out last year. Everything I've seen of Weber's Bad Cinderella. I've seen worse. Yeah. I I will say that um it's kind of interesting that apparently we're getting uh these two characters back. Yeah, we're getting a sort of sequel sequel multi-sequel movie cuz we're getting the fourth Descendants movie coming out later this year, The Rise of Red, and it is going to be reuniting Paula Montalban and Brandy as Cinderella and the Prince from this movie. And they're going to have a daughter, Chloe, and her and Red, who is the daughter of the Queen of Hearts, are going to have a time-traveling adventure with the White Rabbit's pocket watch where we see all of our Disney prince and princesses as teenagers in high school. Which I'm pretty sure shouldn't be a thing considering their respective stories, but descendant throughout continuity a long time ago. Yeah. So yeah, we're just gonna forget Chad Charming exists. <laughs> Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna forget that we already had a Cinderella and a Prince Charming in the other movies. We're gonna forget all about that and just have this. Though I I will say that Disney bringing this movie back, putting it on Disney Plus, and sort of doing a pseudo sequel as part of their Descendants franchise. Did not see that coming, but I don't hate it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people of our generation have fond memories of this. For a lot of people, this was their first exposure, not necessarily to the story of Cinderella, but the exposure to the Broadway musical in general. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, what whatever gets you there. Yeah, I mean, like I said, there are people when when th when that was announced, they, there was a lot of people of our generation that was saying Brandy was their Cinderella. So for their Cinderella to come back now as an adult, now having that Cinderella having a child and that, following that adventure, if that's what gets you going, great. Um, I don't know if we'll cover it on the podcast. 
or not. I mean, we only covered the first Descendants movie. But uh, like I said, if it gets you going, if if this is what you want, great. More power to you. Uh, I probably, I mean, I might watch a few clips on YouTube out of curiosity's sake, but I don't think I'm going to be sitting down and watching the whole movie. But uh, so let's wrap this up. Kiki, does Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella 97 have the magic? Weirdly, I'm going to say yes, and it's mostly for all the other cast members. And mostly because of Bernadette Peters. I'm just going to say Bernadette Peters absolutely steals this show. If for nothing else, watch this for Bernadette Peters. I will agree with you. Bernadette Bernadette Peters steals the show. Jason Alexander, to me, also steals the show. And Paolo Montalban. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Whitney Houston, again, legend, has that great voice. She uses it very well in the in here. Everybody else, and I hate saying, I know there are people who love this version, and Brandy is their Cinderella, but everybody else who is not Bernadette Peters, Jason Alexander, Whitney Houston, or Paolo Montalban, everybody else, grossly miscast. Or underutilized. Or underutilized, like I said. Victor Garber, legendary stage actor, horribly underutilized in this movie. Yeah. So, yeah. So. But I'm still going to say it's got some magic because, you know. Yeah, I'm definitely going to say it has magic. I think it's worth watching once. If you it's if it's been a while since you've seen this one, if you're our age, I say give it a give it a once over. Uh, if you're curious about it, it's on Disney Plus. Give it a once over. I don't know if I'm going to come back to this one after after this, but it was nice to come back to this after all those years. Yeah. So uh, let's move on to next week. Uh, next week we are talking about three men and a baby. Uh, I I remember growing up with this movie. It introduced me to the song Good Night, Sweetheart, which is still one of my favorite songs. All right, so come back next week for Three Men and a Baby, and we'll talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye. Don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversations on Facebook, Instagram, and threads at Rewatching the Magic. We are on the X, formerly known as Twitter, at Rewatch the Magic. And new episodes are available every week at rewatchingthemagic.podbean.com. Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it. Podcasts are fun. But there's work to be done. We encourage you to get involved. Here are some organizations we support. The American Civil Liberties Union fights for the constitutional rights of all Americans. Find them at aclu.org. The National Network of Abortion Funds helps people find access to safe abortion services. Their site is abortionfunds.org. The Trevor Project provides a 24-7 crisis helpline for LGBTQ youth and education services for schools on LGBTQ issues. They can be found at thetrevorproject.org.
or find a way to help in your area.